When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. I'm Afwa Hush. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Hi everybody, welcome to History Hit. The violence continues in Israel-Palestine, and as promised, here's part two of our season looking at the history of Arab-Israeli conflict. Coming up next week, we'll have an interview with an Israeli history professor, but today I'm talking to a member of the Jewish diaspora. Lord Daniel Finkelstein is a journalist in the UK. He's a member of the Upper House of Parliament, the House of Lords. He's a very prominent British Jew, and he's been on the podcast before talking about his remarkable family story before the Second World War, during the Holocaust and since. In this interview, he reflects as a Jew, as a believer in Israel, on what's going on at the moment and how we got here. If you wish to listen to Lord Finkelstein's previous podcast, you can do so at historyhit.tv. We've got a new history channel, folks. Hundreds of hours of history documentaries, all the back episodes of this pod, they're all available there. Historyhit.tv. Please go and check it out. But in the meantime, enjoy this episode with Daniel Finkelstein. Daniel, what is your relationship with Israel and Zionism as a British Jew? Well, I've been researching quite a bit of my family history, and it's very interesting to learn a bit more about attitudes to Israel before it existed and before the Second World War. Both my grandfathers and my grandmothers had a view that is understandable in that period and probably doesn't exist in quite the same way in Jewish affairs and Israeli affairs now. There were really three strands of opinion on the creation of Israel in the 1920s and 30s. There were those people who said the Russian pogroms, the Lvov pogroms, the experience of Jews across Europe and in the Middle East means that we have to create a Jewish state. Theodor Herzl had come up with this idea, having seen the degradation of Dreyfus and been much influenced by that. And 
That was one strand of opinion, but probably not the strongest. It was that Judaism is an ethnic identity and it will never be safe in these countries, which, you know, in the case of Lvov, had a battle between the German identity before the First World War and then between the Ukrainians and the Poles. And inevitably, each time it changed between those, they ended up blaming and killing Jews. So there were those people who said, we have to have our own state. There were those people who said the whole idea of states isn't the freedom for Jews. The real freedom for Jews is communism. We need to have an international order. And what's causing this is imperialism and capitalism and the racism that goes with it. And we will liberate people through communism. And the third strand were those people who were nationalists of their own country and believed that Jews had a future in Europe and their future would be safe if they and there were sort of two strands. Some people thought they should just assimilate into Europe altogether, and others felt they would be safe even if they asserted their Jewish identity, but remained very strongly part of the countries in which they lived. Both sets of grandparents belonged to that third strand, and knowing myself as I do, I'm sure that I would have done as well. And that third strand clashed a lot with the Zionists, Let's leave the communists to one side for the moment, because that's rather a different argument. They argued that in the case of my grandfather on my mother's side, Alfred Wiener, who became one of the great archivists of the anti-Nazi movement, he argued and he wrote a book called Critical Journey Through Palestine. He was an Arabist and he said Jews can go there, but a state is not a good idea. There are people who already live there. We won't have peace there. And In any case, there is a kind of fellow feeling between Germanness and Judaism, our places here. And if you want to express that crudely, effectively, he was saying, we can't really be safe in this new place. It would be alien to us. It's a speculative project. And I don't think that's a good idea. And the Zionists were responding, we can't stay here because we're not safe here. And the great tragedy is that they were both correct. My grandfather, as part of his collection of German Nazi propaganda. One of the things that the library has, and it can be still seen in its home in Russell Square, is a board game in which young children are supposed to collect Jewish pieces with hook noses using their white pieces to take these Jews to collection points. And one of the slogans on the game is, go to Palestine. Because one of the solutions that the Nazis had developed was that Jews would simply get out and they thought maybe they could go there. Right. And now all over Europe, the slogans are Jews get out of Palestine. And I think it's not possible to understand Jewish views about Israel without understanding that. The way that I see it is that the Second World War rather settled the battle between those three groupings. Communism did not emerge as an attractive alternative to anybody, certainly not to my father. You know, his grandfather was in the Gulag. He ended up nearly being killed in a state collective farm. And so that was certainly not ever a solution to the problem of Jewish liberation. But the truth is that remaining in Poland or returning to Poland as a Jew or as a capitalist was impossible after the Second World War. In fact, Their home isn't even in Poland. You can go on Google and you can find my grandfather's home, which is still called the Villa Adolf Finkelstein, in which leading members of the Communist Party and the president of Ukraine ended up living. So that wasn't an option for them. It remained the case 
that my family was more attracted to the idea of European diaspora living, and that's why I'm living here. But the argument over whether or not it would be necessary or desirable to have a state of Israel was settled by that. And I think that all of the new research on the creation of the state of Israel absolutely demonstrates that it was not a bloodless process. People were dispossessed. Not everybody, because some people sold their land, some people left voluntarily, but some people did not, because in 1948 they had a war and a refugee problem was created as a result of that war when the people who started the war didn't win it. And that did create real injustices. And for the children of those people and the grandchildren and great-grandchildren, as we now are, I completely understand their view. I've never failed to understand why the Palestinians rejected the idea of a two-state solution, didn't want the Jews to be there. But at the same time, from my historical experience, it was essential that it be somewhere. And where else was it going to be? And people who were trying to get their heads around why it seems that everybody's shouting at each other and nobody has a solution need to understand that there isn't one. Because ultimately, at the end, you end up thinking, well, how are we going to compromise? And how are we going to pick? And even the compromises will be inadequate. And so that probably gives you an understanding of my historical relationship. I have never been starry-eyed about Israel. and I'm not an Israeli, but I've always been believe that the existence and security of a state of Israel is essential to the Jewish people, even though I understand that it's been the creation of various wars, and those are never nice creations. But just in the same way that the facts have meant that there exists a house called the Villa Adolf Finkelstein that sits in the middle of something called Lviv, in which my father didn't live, a place that now no longer has any Poles or any Jews in it, and nobody realistically thinks that I'm going to go and live there. And just as I feel a sense of injustice about that and think somebody probably ought to compensate us for that, they're not going to. Facts exist on the ground, and you have to look at what we would now do about that. Hi, everyone. You listen to Dan Snow's History here. My teeth are on the mend, slowly. We're talking to Daniel Finkelstein about Israel and Palestine. More after this. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you. 
When we were messaging over the weekend, you pointed out something that really stuck with me. The facts on the ground appear understandably unfair to the Palestinians, and yet their refusal to accept them makes their situation ever worse. That's absolutely true. They unquestionably would have been in a better position if they had accepted before 1948 the existence of a two-state solution. But I do understand why they didn't want to do that, why they did not do that. Anybody who thinks that the free Palestine or Palestinian human rights argument is the result of some recent incursion by the Israelis somewhere or some recent dispute has to remember that all these battles have been happening since 1948 and since before the creation of a state of Israel. If the occupation was the reason why Palestinians have a just cause in which they fight Israelis, then there wouldn't have been the occupation in the first place because the occupation was created by a war that took place in 1967 and 1973. As I always put it, when people say, you know, Israel should go back to before its 1967 borders. Well, the time when it was inside its 1967 borders was 1966, right? Why did we then have the 1967 war at all? The truth is it isn't a row about the occupation. It's a row about whether Israel can exist. And my view is there was always a strong case for that because there was a case for the Jews having a state which I think was almost undeniable and which the UN accepted, and there was a very good case for it being there. I understand why it was resisted, but I also understand why it was created. But you also have to look at the situation now and ask yourself, are people seriously suggesting, one, that we simply turf the Jews out of Israel, right? Where are those people going to go? Or are they actually also seriously suggesting that we create a Palestinian state simply leaving those people there? And given that even the Palestinians aren't safe in the areas in which they govern, I don't think the Jews would be. And the important thing is that it's not just that I think that, which is contentious and people listening to this may be infuriated by it. But the thing to understand is the Israelis aren't going to do that because the core of Zionism was world opinion won't save us. World opinion may read Anne Frank's diary, but she still died. And world opinion may have abhorred what happened to my mother, but she still ended up in Belson and my grandmother still starved to death. And the creation of the state of Israel is about attempting to create a place where people could go. I think you would agree with this, Dan, that one of the techniques of the Nazis, anybody who's interested in that, Hannah Arendt makes this point quite well in her Eichmann in Jerusalem book. The first move the Nazis made in all the countries in which they then oppressed the Jews was to make them stateless. And there's a good reason for that, because then they had no place that was responsible for protecting them and upon whom war was being made by infringing on the civil rights of these individuals. And they had no places to go. And I do understand the argument that says, well, now that's an old... But this was made to me only by a very articulate Jewish opponent of Israel, Rivka Brown, who said, that is a generational view. You're close to the Holocaust. She's one further generation away, so doesn't have the same experience. And we are now safe in Britain. Well, first of all, I think that is blithe about what's happening all over the world, including in the United States and in Eastern and Central Europe. But secondly, I'm a statistician. If you look at Simon Sharma's history of the Jews for a couple of thousand years, in every generation recurring over and over again, the Jews are annihilated, oppressed or killed. How likely is it that we've reached the end of that process? Not very likely.
yeah, it feels like it would be a hell of a gamble, that's for sure. I also completely agree with you that the argument isn't actually about the 67 borders, but it is about the existence of Israel itself. And I'm very interested in how practical you appear to be. You're not talking about, you don't seem to be hugely motivated by the kind of millennia-old claim to the Holy Land, the Kingdom of David. It sounds like you'd have been happy with some of the other suggestions of 100 years ago. Madagascar, for example. Is that fair? I think you're characterising my view correctly, and that's why it's not the only view. So I definitely am my grandfather's grandson, right? Alfred and Adolf, actually, my paternal grandfather, Dolu, neither Alfred or Dolu bought that argument that there was kind of some historic reason why Jews should all congregate in the Middle East and live in Jerusalem and near there. They saw it in practical terms, and I'm the inheritor of that. But it's one of the reasons why it took place there. And it is a bit of a response to the idea that it's mere colonial settler behaviour. The Jewish people were expelled from that part of the world, and now they're returning. I see the pull of that, and I see the reason why Zionism was created there. But I don't struggle to understand my grandfather's ambivalence to the Zionists. I think I would have had that view too. I'm not for great speculative projects. I am definitely, from what I regard as a sort of British pragmatic tradition, and I would have definitely had the reaction that that wasn't the way forward for the Jews. But as a practical matter, it ended up being, you know, well, here's a direct story. One of the reasons that I'm here at all is my mother survived the war and she survived the war because she had a Latin American passport. She had a Paraguayan passport. And that was actually purchased from a Swiss man who was the Paraguayan consul and he was selling them effectively and the Polish operation was created to procure these and to provide them to Jews. And that meant she could be part of Himmler's idea that there would be a great exchange And he created groups of Jews who were called exchange Jews, and they might be exchanged, he hoped, for Germans who were captured by the Allies or for equipment or for money. And one group of these people had Latin American passports, but they also had Palestine certificates. Because although the Latin American documents were quite good for getting them out of somewhere, they weren't very useful for getting them into anywhere, because the Paraguayans may be willing to stand by the passports as documents, but they weren't willing to actually take in the people who held them. And so the Palestinian certificates were somewhere where people could go. And several people were put on this list, mainly people who had relatives who lived there, but the Jewish communities were able to create a list of what were euphemistically called veteran Zionists. They weren't Zionists at all. And one of the reasons you know that is my grandmother was one of the people on that list and she wasn't a Zionist, right? And they never were able to go to Palestine. The British mandate wouldn't let in very many people because after the Middle East Arab revolt, they were worried about letting too many Jews go to Palestine, right? So just to be clear, directly during the Holocaust, as a result of Arab rejection of the idea of Jews living in Israel, people died in the Holocaust directly, right? Just so that people are clear that this isn't some sort of made-up argument. My grandma didn't end up using that, but it's very interesting to me that that was one of the few places that acted in any way as a possible defence, because there were no other states, the Americans or the British. Anthony Eden opposed the idea of prisoner exchanges from the Germans on one ground, strong ground that he was worried the Jews would go to live in Palestine. And actually, ultimately, very few people ever were on an exchange. This is, by the way, not speculative. He wrote it down. What's it like for you at the moment? I mean, I've got 
Jewish friends and colleagues who regard being questioned about Israel as a form of prejudice in itself. What's it like as you watch the reaction, the overreaction of, say, the Israeli army, the Israeli state? Look, nobody should be required to take responsibility for something that somebody else in their ethnic group may do. But obviously, people must take responsibility for the consequences of their political views. So, for instance, I was always very frank about the cost to public services or welfare budgets of my view on austerity. And I was quite willing to discuss that and what the moral alternatives were. So anybody who holds the view that I do, that it's important that there be a state for Jews and that the right place to maintain it is Israel, I think does have to defend it, not because I'm Jewish, but because it's my political stance, one in which I hope many non-Jewish people will join and therefore they will share my responsibility for it. No Jew is required to make that argument. I would argue with them that they ought. And then within the Jewish community, there's all sorts of arguments about what the best ways of advancing that argument and about the rights and wrongs of the situation. I believe that the occupation has proven a strategic and moral disaster. I worry that Israel is giving up on the idea of a two-state solution, but it is open, that argument, to the response, well, the Palestinians have never been for a two-state solution, ever. Being in favour of a two-state solution is an impossible dream, and what matters is therefore ensuring that Israel can live in the land that it's living in, in some sort of security, and therefore moving towards a one-state solution with the settlement policy that implies. Again, I think that is a moral and strategic disaster, actually. It's certainly an error. My view isn't shared by all Jews, nor do I require it to be, and they can't require me to hold a different view. It's just a view about what the rights and wrongs are. I do acknowledge that my view that we must carry on pressing for a two-state solution is in the face of all the evidence about whether or not it will be created. And it's so important to understand that when these free Palestine statements come with from the river to the sea, it is not just about creating a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza, something that is absolutely negotiable and available to the Palestinians, in my opinion. For all the unreason of Netanyahu's position and for all the existence of far-right people in any country, but including Israel, even including the fact that Israel worries that that state that would be created would be dominated by Hamas at worst, and at best would be like another Egypt. For all that, I still think that's a negotiable, and I still hope that it can happen. But I do think the argument these people are calling for a from the river to the sea is pretty strong. And it basically means is drive out all of the Jews from Israel. And that is millions of Jews, unless you think they can be safely included in a multi-ethnic Hamas or Palestinian authority dominated Palestine, which I just think is self-evidently not true. Lord Daniel Finkelstein, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, a bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating, and give it an absolutely glowing review. Purge yourself. Give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's a tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And I need all the fire support I can get. So 
That will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Megan Rinks. And I'm Melissa D. Montz. And like every other person with access to a microphone, we started a podcast. On Mondays, we release Don't Blame Me, which is an advice podcast where listeners call in and we share our thoughts on situations such as what to do if you're going to your boyfriend's family function and you haven't told him that you previously slept with both his twin brothers. Then on Thursdays, we release our podcast, But Am I Wrong?, where we ethically gossip about pop culture, politics, our lives, and your lives. Listeners write in and we tell them if they're wrong or right in a situation. Are you the hero or the villain? On Tuesdays and Fridays, we throw in a little something extra as well. A little something something. We strive to create a community grounded in activism, mental health, and inclusivity. Think of us as like your blunt, honest friends who give you advice that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But we're also always rooting for your success. What we lack in credentials, we make up for in opinions. We do that in every episode too. (laughs) (laughs) We're professional unprofessional. So if you're looking for a new slate of podcasts to add to your routine, we're here for you. ACAST recommends. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.